0: As we've studied the parables this fall, we wrap that up today um, and finish with this study that's been, for many of us, very uh, challenging and inspirational and helpful at multiple times. But like we talked about last week when we discussed dealing with and coping with change, one of the things that makes that difficult is we develop our preferences. And the same thing is true as you begin to read through Scripture. If you're on a reading plan where you start reading the Scripture, whether you begin at the very first page and read through the entirety like you would a normal book, that's not the way I recommend reading the Scripture. It's a lot easier and better if you use one of the the scheduled plans because you mix it up, Old Testament, New Testament, um, because you're going to, if you start from the very beginning, you're going to get about two chapters in and then it's going to be really tough. For a long time so it's better to kind of mix it up but as you begin reading the entirety of scripture you will find just like you do in every other area of your life you will find preferences and the story we look at today in luke chapter seven is one of my favorites i first time i read this was just a few weeks after i became a follower of christ and it resonated so deeply in my heart i had the biggest struggle in those first few months grasping the reality of scripture, grasping the reality of friends who told me about Jesus and that he really could give you new life and he really could actually give you a hope of forgiveness and a completely new start. Particularly, I think, when you're older and you make that decision to trust Christ it's really hard because emotionally, mentally, in our memory and in our thought processes and in our relationships, we know all of those things that led us to the conclusion we're a sinner and in need of forgiveness, we feel like they're still there. And so grasping the reality of God's love and his forgiveness, that it simply isn't there. What God has forgiven no longer exist and he keeps no record of it. His forgiveness is full and complete, which is why it's life-changing. And when you try to grasp that, it's overwhelming because most of us have never experienced that kind of love and it's hard to fully grasp it. And we tend to hold on to and keep those things that have been a part of the affliction of our life. And so, Struggling with all that as a brand new Christian, as a brand new believer, I ran into this story, this story that contains both facets of what we've studied in the parables. It has in the very center of it, a parable, a fictitious story, a story that Jesus makes up to prove the point. But in this particular parable in Luke chapter seven, it also has a very real circumstance that unfolds and causes Jesus to share this story. the story, the moral of the story, so to speak, as we've been focusing these last eight weeks um, of understanding how much God loves us and how much God takes care of us and how his forgiveness is complete. So this particular story is a mixture of a very real situation with the illustration or the analogy of Jesus's story to help understand and interpret and find a frame of reference to understand not just the reality of what takes place, the history of this moment, but the reality of what happens in our hearts. When we say that simple prayer, many of us were led to pray, Lord, I trust you. I admit I'm a sinner, but I believe in you. And I'm going to confess my sin to you and I'm gonna confess my faith in you. And that journey begins with the full, complete life change. And to me, this is one of the most beautiful expressions of that life changed. To be so deeply loved that no embarrassment, no inhibition would keep us from expressing to God how much we love him, how thankful we are, and how much we want to worship him. Let's go to Luke chapter seven and um, Let's look at this passage of scripture and begin to play this drama, so to speak, out in its context. In Luke chapter 7, this particular moment starts in verse 36. So you get to Luke chapter 7, the beginning of the New Testament, kind of in the the last third of your Bibles. And in Luke chapter 7, the context is immediately given to us. Then one of the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders that Jesus had so much difficulty with. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, referencing Jesus, to eat with him. And so Jesus is at a dinner party. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined in typical Mideastern fashion. And he's there with this Pharisee. A woman in town, in verse 37, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table In the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee, the religious leader, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, and this is where the parable begins. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is a significant amount of money, and the other owed 50, which is still a significant amount, but obviously not like the 10 times of the amount first mentioned. These creditors, these two debtors, one owes 500, one owes 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon, this is the Pharisee again, the the religious leader, Responds and says, I suppose the one who he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he, Jesus, said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's so many directions you can go with this story. This story points to so many aspects in our hearts and in our lives and in the process of new life, trusting in Jesus. You can look at at the simple statements that are made in the historical moments and just follow and track on those. You have Simon who has not even done the basic necessities of hospitality. We don't practice this in most of our homes today, so it seems a little odd for us. But in those mid-eastern homes, it was typical practice. It has nothing to do with spirituality and not having to do with Simon being a religious leader. It was common practice among every household that if a guest came in, they washed and bathed before they came to the dinner. They came to the dinner where they were invited to recline in that fashion with the tables closed close to the ground and recline back and be served and prepared for. In that process, typically small basins of water, towels were available to wash their feet because even though they had cleaned and bathed before they got there, Their feet, typically barefoot or sandaled, are dirty when they arrive. And so it's just common practice to wash their feet, to let them wash their feet at a minimum. It's common practice because of the arid region to anoint their head, to cover their head, to to literally let them kind of make an oil base to help with the dryness of their skin and, and the politeness of that moment. All of this is common. This is not an uncommon situation. But the religious leader, as Jesus arrives and as Jesus says, doesn't even do the basics. Doesn't do what he would do for any other guest. And yet the story begins to play out. And a woman becomes aware that Jesus is at this party. And it's again, common hospitality is common practice in that culture. That if you're aware that a teacher is at a location that there is an assumption at some point, even though he's reclining, resting, eating a meal, he will probably teach. And so the houses were very public and very open. And so again, it's not a matter of invasiveness or, or out of the ordinary that she would show up hoping to just hear what Jesus might have to say. But she shows up and she's overwhelmed being in Jesus's presence because clearly a faith moment has happened prior to this. And everything exceptional begins to unfold because she is overwhelmed with the reality of the hope she finds in Jesus and responds, ironically, appropriately, even if it seems a little uncomfortable for us in our culture. And we could look at that. We could look at the arrogance of Simon who uh, thinks to himself he, everybody says he's a prophet. Everybody says he's possibly the Messiah. But he doesn't even know enough to know that the whole town, the whole community knows this woman should not be in his presence. Because not only is she a sinner, but she is a sinner of significant reputation. She doesn't deserve to be in a holy place by man's judgment and man's determination. He's thinking it to himself. He doesn't say it out loud. He's thinking it in this story. Just like all of our friends and all of our followers and all the people we know. Judging, criticizing, bullying. At least he had the decency and the diplomacy to do it in his head not outright verbally in front of everybody who's gathered in this moment, but what he doesn't realize while he's accusing Jesus in his head he can't possibly be a prophet. He can't possibly be a holy teacher. He definitely can't be the Messiah or he wouldn't know who this woman is and he wouldn't know what, what, what a disgrace it is for her to be in his house and to be in Jesus's presence and now touching Jesus. He would know that. I think it's kind of amazing and kind of humbling and a kind of just desserts, so to speak, that Jesus, this guy who he thinks can't know what's going on, knows exactly what's in his head, knows exactly what's in his heart, and challenges it, and challenges it with his negligence and her extravagance. And what extravagance it is. You see this moment beginning in verse 37. This sinful lady of sinful reputation. Most of us think of our sins in terms of the privacy of it. But every once in a while, something we do is wrong enough, everyone knows. But whether they know or it's in private, it is sin. And it's sin that separates us. This sinful lady Walks in, sees Jesus. She came to see Jesus. She's not there to see Simon. She's not there to see any of the disciples who will become apostles. She's not there for anybody other than Jesus. Her gratitude is so focused. I'll be honest, I struggle with this a little bit because I feel like that's what we should be in a a frame of reference and mind that we should be in when we worship. But God's blessings are so extensive. As as I came this morning and as I prepared, yes, there's a segment of it that's work because it's my job, Um, but there's just things I was excited about. I'm excited about seeing the people I am excited about being together. I am excited about listening to the music. I'm excited that that during the teaching, God not only teaches you, but he teaches me. I learn from these experiences the same way that I study, research, and craft them into messages. I learn, I'm excited about the entire experience because worship isn't confined to a song. Worship's what happens in our hearts. And if God blesses us with friends, and God blesses us with family. And if God blesses us with people we wanna be with, and God blesses us with, with little kids that we get to hug and say hi to and talk to, and God blesses us with, with the oldest segment of our congregation who have wisdom and, and advice and who pray for us, the context of community, the context of joining, the context of being in worship and participating and engaging, it's all awesome. So part of me wants to say, well, you gotta be so focused on Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus gave us everything we experienced this morning and we wouldn't experience it without him. She came to see Jesus. She gains community and she gains these blessings in her worship. She's focused. She's generous. Truthfully, if you assume that the reputation is professional, then ironically, she probably doesn't have a shortage of wealth. But she will face it now. Her career just came to a screeching halt when she met Jesus, found forgiveness, and a new way of life. But nonetheless, in one of the most expensive containers, an alabaster jar, she arrives with that one single gift to give to Jesus. There's... No expense that we can spare. You know, generosity was never something particularly easy for me until I met Jesus. I was generous to an extent. It was because of lack of budgeting and lack of foresight. Every dollar I met prior to meeting Jesus was spent on somebody else. I was that obnoxious guy in high school that took all of his earnings and invited all of his buddies, all the football players, all the cheerleaders to go to the pizza buffet for lunch and then pick up the tab because I could, but sadly enough, because I wanted the attention. That wasn't generosity, that was dysfunction, and it was poor management. But when I met Jesus, and now this many years later, What about giving to God can be so hard when I pause for just a moment and think about what he's done for me? Can you see this lady in her house knowing that she's about to go to the Pharisee's house who would have nothing to do with her and doesn't have anything to do with her and looking around and actually saying to herself, what can I give Jesus and then sparing no expense. And she takes the jar and pours it out. She's extremely respectful. Worship needs a respectful attitude when we approach him. She comes to his house. She sees him reclining there. And then she pours out and brings the alabaster jar of perfume. And then in verse 38, there's... This statement, and I've been trying to picture it in my head, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm struggling with it, but she stands behind him at his feet. Well, it's kind of hard for me to picture exactly how that works, because at the same time, she would be facing him at his feet. The logistics of it, I struggle with a little bit. But the purpose of it, she is in the presence of the one who can forgive her and will forgive her. And her faith believes that. So you have to assume that Jesus has a level of authority that honestly, at this point, most of the community is not recognizing. And definitely most of the religious leadership and the structured traditional religion isn't recognizing. But she recognizes it. Think about those simple words when you begin to pray. Father. If we pray like Jesus told us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, our Father who resides and dwells in eternity. Maybe somebody taught you to pray, Lord Jesus. That word coming from the Greek language of the New Testament that literally describes all encompassing leader. Authority over everything and now in my prayer that authority is applied to my life it is not only focused it is not only generous but it is highly respectful and then it's emotional there's no hesitation on her part she's standing behind him at his feet and it simply says she's weeping she's just weeping it's Potentially at this point, a mixture of grief and happiness, a mixture of sorrow and hope because she knows everything she's done. She knows how all of it is offensive to God. She knows how all of it's offensive to the community. She knows the reputation she has and there's grief for all of that but there is unbelievable joy and expectation and hope that she's in the one place, in the one moment where well, all of that may be remedied. You can't expect the Pharisees to forgive her. They won't because it, pers- it damages their personal reputation. You can't affect the business community to forgive her because they have probably been her primary clients. You can't expect the children on the streets to forgive her because they have been warned by their parents repeatedly avoid this lady. Where is she going to get forgiveness? Where will she find it? Will she find it if she moves to another town, to another place? Where can she find it? And the answer is nowhere, except in this one moment, at this one dinner, standing at the feet of God, and it overwhelms her. Many of our tears are mixed with grief and hope, with pain and healing with sorrow and joy and it's okay as long as we end the story with the hope we process the grief we adapt to it but we also begin to process and to accept the forgiveness just she wept uncontrollably she begins to wash his feet But there's no towel, and there's no water basin. But the weeping is significant enough, and gratuitous enough, that there are enough tears that in some form or some fashion, the tears are able to at least dampen his feet. And without a towel, begins to wipe it with her own long, luxurious hair that was a trademark of her business. Now, nothing more than a rag to wipe the feet of the one who will and can and does forgive her. And then that part that would be so dusty and dirty and disgusting, and even today in our culture, typically avoided, is lavish with her kisses and with the perfume. She's focused, she's generous, she's respectful, she's emotional, she's extravagant, and she's affectionate. All for what Jesus has done. We've looked at, we've seen how dismissive and what the indifference is on the part of the religious leader who has no real clue what's going on. But Jesus still, because Jesus wants us to understand, he's still confronted and taught and the parable begins. Simon, you specifically, who spent your whole life and have vocationally chosen to live a religious lifestyle, that that life of yours, you're not grasping the elemental fundamentals of that life. And so this little story, there are two individuals who owe tremendous sums of money, one much more significantly, literally mathematically, 10 times as much and yet, they're forgiven. And that simple question, Simon, which one of those two is going to love the most? And then, its simple application: well, clearly, the one who's been forgiven the most will love the most. And I understand that. I understood it as a new believer. But I also understand it after years of living the Christian life and still finding myself regularly and repeatedly having to come back into the presence of Jesus and acknowledge one more time, I've sinned. Maybe it wasn't something I thought. Maybe it wasn't something I said. Maybe it wasn't something I did. It, it really doesn't matter in this case what the sin is. It was wrong, it was offensive to God, and as a child of God, I knew better. So in my mind, at least, it's even more egregious because I should have known better because now God is not some abstract concept to me. He is my heavenly father. He is my savior. He is my Lord. He is my brother. I am his co-heir. Everything I have, everything of significance in my life is because of him. And so now the sin's even worse. And I still come back to his feet and I still find the forgiveness and I still find the hope. So yes, if we want to be honest, all of us, I think, find our liabilities significantly outweigh our assets when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to living in relationship with a holy God. So we just keep loving more. We keep motivated. That's why we do what we do. We're not here today. We're not spending the money we're spending. We're not spending the energy we're spending. We're not trying to create a production. We're not not here to propagate religion. Our mission statement as a church says that we try and we regularly invite others into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Jesus. We don't even, in our mission statement, this may be a surprise to people, we don't even say that we invite people to church. If you are here because your son invited you, because a neighbor invited you, because another neighbor, a member of the community invited you, and I know some of these people personally or met them this morning. I know why they were invited here, but what I'm gonna say to you open and honestly, the primary reason you were invited to church is so that you could be in a venue that will talk openly about the love of God and the depth of our sin and find the forgiveness and the hope of God's love and his dealings with our sin. It's about viable change. I'm not sure if Simon ever gets it, but Jesus turns back to the woman. These are probably my two favorite verses. In verse 48, he looks at her and says, Your sins are forgiven unequivocally, without hesitation. Without stipulation, Jesus wasn't a lawyer, so there aren't 17 clauses underneath that statement. There's not 150 exceptions. There is no small print. Grasp this. If you write in your Bible, circle this passage. Circle those few words. Your sins are forgiven because that's it. Your sins are forgiven. I don't have the authority. If I, if I did, I would raise my hands in some form of ritualistic fashion and tell you your sins are forgiven. I don't have that authority. But in the presence of Jesus, he has that authority and he can do that. Think about the depth of those words. Your sins are forgiven. And I, spend, I get to see the spectrum of that. If you're six years old and you prayed to receive Jesus with your parents last night in bed as we've witnessed the last few months and a number of the children of our church doing exactly that and now you're wanting to be baptized, your sins are forgiven. You may not even understand what a sin is. You may because maybe you lied to your mom or your dad. Maybe you stole something out of the refrigerator but I'm assuming that at six years of age you haven't gained a reputation in the community for being a sinner. At least I hope. I hope. There are victims, unfortunately, in our society and in our culture. Your sins are forgiven. You're at the end of life. You know it. You can see it on the horizon. It's coming whether you want it to or not. And everything you did to prevent it isn't stopping it. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus' presence. Simply let him know what he already knows. That's what always kind of amazes me is the Pharisee acts like Jesus doesn't have a clue what's going on. Jesus knows this lady's heart. He knows every thought. He knows every moment. He knows every part of it as bad and as illicit and as horrible it might be. Jesus knows. And his answer, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then down in verse 15. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Whether this is the first time you meet Jesus or whether you have repeatedly done it over and over again, every time he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Our band's going to come and they're going to lead us in worship and lead us in a time of decision where we can contemplate the depth of God's love and possibly make that decision to trust and know that our sins are forgiven. Know that we have the ability to be forgiven in such a form, in such a fashion that we can go and we can leave in peace. Reminds me of another story and another woman and Jesus again is confronted over her illicit reputation and Jesus challenges the crowd so eager to judge and they don't even want to just judge they want to execute the judgment sentence and Jesus looked at that crowd and says which one of you which one of you hasn't sinned and nobody can answer because all of us have sinned. To that woman, Jesus offers forgiveness and then he tells her, go and sin no more. I would love to tell you your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace and never sin again. But that's not honest and it's not true. But what I would say to all of us as veteran believers, come to Jesus again. Trust him again. Confess that sin to him again. And as John would write in the latter years of his life, he will always be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.